Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to another special Ukraine war report, a Monday special, and episode 163. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. The war in Ukraine has shifted into a dangerous new phase. Putin is quickly becoming more and more isolated and more and more brutal. But Ukraine is on the offensive, and more and more by the day, the mighty Ukrainians are looking like they can win this thing almost single-handedly and on behalf of the world. And now is a time to stay vigilant. I came to Europe again this week with a clear and determined message for NATO, for the G7, for the European Union, for all freedom-loving nations. We must commit now to be in this fight for the long haul. We must remain unified today and tomorrow and the day after and for the years and decades to come. It will not be easy. There will be cost, but it's a price we have to pay because the darkness that drives autocracy is ultimately no match for the flame of liberty that lights the souls of free people everywhere. Time and again, history shows that it's from the darkest moments but the greatest progress follows. These are the darkest moments. Civilians being shelled, children being bombed, freedom fighters begging for support, and millions of refugees spilling all across Europe and around the world. But after these darkest moments, the greatest progress could follow if the Ukrainians continue to win, if the Russians continue to fall apart, and if the U.S. especially does more to help. That clip was from President Biden's historic speech this week in Poland, delivering perhaps the most important speech of his life. And the message was finally on target. It was the message we needed from President Biden at the State of the Union last month. It's taken over a month of Ukrainians fighting and dying, but we finally got the right message from our president, the right message for the world, and the right message especially for the American people. It was historic, and I really hope you can watch the whole thing and share with any American who didn't see it. It played midday on a Saturday, so most of the country missed it, and it's linked in the show notes wherever you got this pod. But he hit the target. It was in his words but also in the images that surrounded his entire visit to Europe. He visited with soldiers from the 82nd Airborne that had been deployed to support NATO. He met with them in a mess hall. He shook hands, he took selfies, and he said thank you. And it was great to see the president with our troops in this critical time. And it's vital for him to do that, to be out with them, and 
to bring the press along, to remind America that our troops are out there and remind their families watching back home that the president and the country remembers them. But it also underscores how important it is for the White House and Department of Defense to stop blocking American media embeds there now, which they still continue to do. There are no American media embeds with our troops deployed in support of NATO. But the images that came out were good. Biden also met with Ukrainian refugees, and he took pictures with kids, refugee kids. One image in particular was really striking. It was Biden smiling, holding a Ukrainian little girl who looked to be about five or six years old, the same age as my oldest boy. It was powerful. And no matter how you feel about Biden, you have to admit that it was a good image for America and the world. He looked kind. He looked like he cared. He looked like he was listening. He looked very different from Putin. This is what we want our president to look like on the world stage. Because kindness matters. And kindness is contagious. And this weekend, Biden reset the table for the world and for America. And he finally laid it out properly. He explained it. This is the fight of our time. We're all in this together. It will be hard. It will require sacrifice. It will be worth it. We will be victorious. Freedom will prevail if we all stand with Ukraine. There were other key messages in Biden's speech, too. He said clearly, the Russian people are not our enemy. That is so true and so important. The people are the future for Russia. Putin is not. And Biden ended his speech with a big one, a very big one. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. That was the line that got all the headlines. It was the rhetorical shot heard around the world, and especially in Moscow. It sounded like Biden was calling for regime change. It wasn't in his prepared remarks. Biden threw it in there. And it was the truth. But within minutes, the White House was already trying to walk it back. They released an official statement saying, the president's point was that Putin cannot be allowed to exercise power over his neighbors or the region. He was not discussing Putin's power in Russia or regime change. All right, whatever. They're still trying to walk it back, but it's too late now. It's out there. It's true. And now it's Biden's most consequential ad lib ever. And for all of you that were so worried about how Putin might respond to a no-fly zone, how do you think that line from Biden is landing in Moscow today? They may be trying to walk it back, but it was the truth. This only ends with Putin gone, either dead or in prison, but gone. We've talked about it on this show for weeks. And it's not just Lindsey Graham saying it anymore. It's true. And it has been from the start, no matter who says it. The only way this ends is with Putin dead or in prison. And the best and most likely way that it happens is at the hands of the Russian people. And good on Biden for finally calling it like it is. But Putin is not out yet. And Biden's speech was the right direction, but it still wasn't enough. There is much more we can do as Americans, much more. And here was some immediate and important reaction from inside Ukraine. Kira Rudik is a member of the Ukrainian parliament and the leader of the political party Golos. And right after Biden's speech, she tweeted this. 
While Biden is in Poland, Putin hits Lviv, nearly 150 kilometers from him. And we get this speech. No promises, no weapons, lots of condemnation. What is our hope? That Putin will die of laughing? Hashtag stop Putin now. Rudik is right. Biden had the right message, but he missed an opportunity to send more support to Ukraine. More of anything. America still hasn't sent the MiG fighters the Ukrainians want. America still hasn't enforced the no-fly zone that they want. And America still hasn't admitted them into NATO as they want. We've got to do more. Because Ukraine is not just their fight, it's our fight too. Biden finally laid that out. But he didn't go far enough beyond the talk. And Zelensky has been continuing to call him out, to call NATO out, and call the world out. And this week he said to NATO directly, please, never, never tell us that our army does not meet NATO standards. He's right. He's damn right. NATO could not find a better addition to the alliance in the world. Ukraine will forever be known around the globe as a nation of tenacious, creative, honorable, effective, righteous fighters. And Ukraine now has one of the most experienced military forces in the world. They are the new standard. But Ukraine needs less talk, more action. And their brave President Zelensky continues to make that case better than anyone else in the world. The war of Russia is not only the war against Ukraine. Its meaning is much wider. Russia started the war against freedom as it is. This is only the beginning for Russia on the Ukrainian land. Russia is trying to defeat the freedom of all people in Europe, of all the people in the world. It tries to show that only crude and cruel force matters. It tries to show that people do not matter as well as everything else that make us people. That's the reason we all must stop Russia. The world must stop the war. The world must stop the war. And we must stop it now, however we can, as soon as we can. And America's got to lead the way. Because it's awful now in Ukraine, but it can get worse. Much worse. And in this episode, we'll share the painful truth about exactly how urgent it really is. But despite the successes of his speech, back at home in America, Biden's job approval fell to the lowest levels of his presidency. Seven in 10 Americans expressed low confidence in the president's ability to deal with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And his approval fell to 40% in a new NBC News poll. It's the lowest point since he's been elected. And that shouldn't be surprising if you've been paying attention. Biden's been good at times. He's also struggled. And much of America made up their minds about him a long time ago. If you don't think he's in trouble, you need to get out more. Or consider another announcement he made earlier this week. That was good news that reminded us and revealed some bad, which has kind of been the Biden presidency in a nutshell. One step forward, one step back. The United States announced this week, before his speech, that it would welcome 100,000 refugees from Ukraine. That's great. It's the right thing to do. Millions have fled Ukraine. It's what America can and should do for Ukraine. It's fantastic. But what a tremendous, unprecedented slap in the face to all our allies in Afghanistan right now. 
It was such a shameful contrast. Ukraine, of course, needs help. And we should do more than 100,000 refugees. But we haven't helped 100,000 from Afghanistan, and we caused that crisis. And we left our allies hanging. We did that, not the world, America. And now the Taliban is in control, Afghan allies are being hunted, and girls are banned from going to school. So while we make really fast allowances for Ukraine and Europe, the great American betrayal of Afghanistan continues. And now, with the Ukraine war raging, and with this announcement, Afghanistan is truly, maybe more than ever, for Godistan. Sean Van Dever is a leader for a nonprofit focused on Afghan refugees, and he tweeted this this week. Imagine being an Afghan reading this as you are cold, starving, and afraid for your life following having served shoulder to shoulder with the United States military. What about all the Afghans who are already here and have been waiting for months to find housing? We should be welcoming refugees from anywhere. What we shouldn't be doing is closing our doors to folks who stood by us or dragging our feet on anything. Chris Purdy is a human rights first activist, and he added, the fact that we can set up a program basically overnight to bring in Ukrainians, but can't solve our own self-made Afghan refugee crisis is interesting. Yeah, it's interesting, all right. It's that contrast. It's that hypocrisy. It's that inconsistency that's at the core of the friction with Biden in America right now. And it's not just Republicans. It's especially among independent Americans. Independents and unaffiliateds often track closely on national defense issues. And while they don't necessarily want to vote for Donald Trump, they'll be less motivated to support Biden and maybe more likely to sit the next election out. This is not an endorsement. This is an analysis. Biden is in political trouble back home. And therefore, right now, we're all in trouble. That's the sad and unfortunate truth when we're in a time of war. And our enemies are celebrating. And there's nobody who'd like to see Biden lose in two years more than Vladimir Putin. He's likely hoping or planning that he can hold on that long. He's willing to wait. He's willing to lose tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of Russian troops. And he's willing to lose much more. He doesn't play by the same rules that we do. And he knows it's much bigger than Biden. But for now, I hope that most folks want Biden to succeed. We need him to succeed. Because if he doesn't, it could be catastrophic for all of us. Biden is now finally admitting that this only ends with Putin gone. Maybe he can also soon admit that war with Russia is already really on. U.S. and British officials this week accused the Russian government of running a years-long campaign to hack into critical infrastructure, including an American nuke plant and a Saudi oil refinery. Now, this should surprise no one, especially if you listen to this show. We've covered the Russian cyber threat in multiple episodes on independent Americans, and most recently in episode 153 with the always brilliant Molly McHugh. Now, we may not be exchanging rockets or bullets with Russia yet, but we definitely are and have been at war with Putin in the cyberspace for years now. And a reminder, Russia didn't meddle with our elections. Russia attacked our elections. Make no mistake. And make no mistake, it can get worse, much worse, especially in Ukraine. Worse than the targeting of schools and churches. 
Worse than the shelling of civilians fleeing the war. Worse than shooting missiles that kill kids. Worse than that? Yes, worse than that. What's the worst that could happen? One word. Nukes. Yep, nukes. Nukes, more likely than any other time in our lifetime, more likely today than any other time in this war so far. The worst case is that Russians might use nuke weapons on the battlefield. The use of nukes is actually part of the Russian military doctrine. And given Biden's recent comments, Russian leadership may be discussing it, planning it, or beginning executing it right now. And as we covered last time we focused on nukes back in May, it's not just Russia with nukes. This week, North Korea flexed its might too. You probably didn't see it, but they fired at least one suspected ballistic missile toward the sea, extending its barrage of weapon tests that could culminate with the firing of its biggest yet intercontinental ballistic missile. Now, there's always Iran and others. Nine countries in the world have nuclear weapons capable of destroying the entire globe. But Russia is the one in the crosshairs. Putin is the one openly threatening to use them. And Putin is the man who seems to sleep with his finger on the trigger. More than any other time in our lifetime, and especially in Ukraine, we're waiting on a war. Since I was a little boy with a toy gun. If you're a child living in Ukraine, you know that easy is over. Easy is over. It's what the Russian chess master Gary Kasparov said, and it's what I've been repeating since the war began. Because it's the truth. And our guest has spent his entire life focused on the hardest truths of all. Nukes. So we're talking nukes again. And rejoining us on this show is one of the best minds in the world on the issue, Joe Serencioni. Joe joined us a few months ago for episode 141, and he's back. Last time, we covered nukes from Russia to space. We covered it all. And Joe and I had just appeared on the Vice series that I helped produce called While the Rest of Us Die. We had done a special episode where we talked about the Marshall Islands exposures, the Western Shoshone tribe, the atomic vets, and America's secret nuke past. But Joe's back to help us focus on Russia now. He's worked on nuclear weapons policy in Washington for more than 35 years and is one of the top experts in the field. He's a distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He was the Director of Nonproliferation at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's the author of multiple books, and he was the president of the Plowshares Fund, a global security foundation. He taught at Georgetown. He's one of America's best-known weapons experts. He's frequently appearing in print and on TV across the spectrum. He joins us again to drop knowledge bombs about nukes. Because easy is over. And this terrible time we're experiencing right now might look easy compared to what could come in the future. Nukes are the number one threat to the entire world as we know it. Yeah, pandemics can be globe killers, 
And of course, climate change is stripping the world bit by bit. But only nukes could destroy the entire world as we know it in a matter of hours. And that is worth your focus and your attention and your vigilance. But it's not just about the big nuke wars. It's also about the smaller ones and the unsecured sites and other dangers that could be percolating below the surface. This is much more dynamic than the news lets you believe. Wartime is here, not just for Ukraine, but for everyone who cares about freedom, liberty, humanity, and security. And we are closer to a true world war than ever before. If you need help waking up this week, this episode's going to do it. But we're not going to sugarcoat it because now, more than any other time in our lifetime, now is a time for us all to stay vigilant. So here on Independent Americans, we'll continue to bring you these special Ukraine war reports. We'll pump out more episodes and we'll increase our focus on national security, military operations, foreign policy, and bring you more independent content to help you meet this moment, stay ahead of the curve, and stay vigilant. We'll continue to dig deeper. We'll continue to demand accountability, to challenge the groupthink, which happens so much on nukes especially. We'll work hard to keep you ahead of the curve, and we'll add light to contrast to heat. We won't just talk about what's happening now. We'll talk about what's happening next, no matter how difficult it might be. We'll adapt, improvise, and overcome, and we'll find ways to take action and talk to people who know their shit, and we'll share the hard truths about even the hardest things which now really does include nuclear war. We're all waiting on a war again, a different kind of war, especially if you're in Kyiv right now, like our friend Quan Nguyen and so many others. And we're waiting on a war of a different kind if you're paying attention. But it's not the nuclear war we know from 1980s movies. And it's not the one you'd know if you only watch cable news. Like the nature of war itself, nuclear war has evolved over the years too. And so too has much of our thinking and our actions. So welcome to what nuclear war and nuclear threats look like in 2022. It's not your grandfather's nuclear war. It's a whole new world and a whole new set of nuke challenges. We're all waiting on a war again. And hopefully, like many times before, we can stop it. Welcome to another Ukraine War Report special. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 163. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world, to those of you listening inside Ukraine, maybe inside Russia or in parts uh, around the world that are impacted by everything we're talking about, we're keeping a very important Ukraine war report, special focus on all things having to do with Ukraine. And we are bringing back a returning champion, one of the most knowledgeable, insightful and popular guests we've had on. I think I'm going to call him a professor for now because I feel like he takes Good. us to school. The great and powerful Joe Serencione joins us back on Independent Americans. Thank you, Paul. Great to be here with you. Um, 
you know, uh, not nearly as vexing as these times is pronouncing your last name. And I think <laughs> I got it right that time. That was right? perfect. Okay. I'm, I'm working on it. Um, but I'm really grateful to have you back, Joe, especially right now. Last time you joined us was November of last year. It was about four months ago. We did a world tour of all things Nuke. Now we're zeroing in on one place. Uh, and yeah. it's a really important time to talk to you because I feel like you add light to contrast all the heat and even hysteria, spin, all the stuff that's out there. You've been a, a clarion voice. Um, but let me start by asking you what I ask everyone, Joe. Where are you and how are you? I'm in Tacoma Park, Maryland, which is right outside Washington, D.C. Uh, same house I've been in for almost 30 years. Uh, and I am fine. Personally, life is good. Uh, the spring is coming. Family's well. I'm healthy. I got a new grandchild coming next month. Things are good. Congratulations. That's, 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 that's good news. And we need, we need some good news right yeah. now because times are tough and dynamic. Uh, I want to talk about all things nuke, right? Yeah. But maybe start with the big picture and then we can go more granular. Joe, can you break down for us? Have we ever been closer to some kind of nuke conflict than we are right now in our lifetime? Yes, we have, but we haven't been this close since the early 1980s. I mean, that was the last time that Americans, people in the world felt that we, there was really a risk of global thermonuclear war. That was when they thought that Ronald Reagan and Leonid Brezhnev, then the head of the Soviet Union, were engaged in nuclear brinkmanship, both arming heavily, both talking about nukes a lot and you know, some some of your listeners may remember the massive demonstrations, a million people in Central Park in 1982, millions of people in the capitals of Europe, because all the talk was then about nuclear war being fought in Europe. Uh, and both the U.S. and Russia were pouring nuclear weapons into the continent. Uh, that and perhaps the nuclear crisis around Cuba in the 1960s were the two big situations like this where tensions boiled over and we had a sustained period of conflict. Other, other times we've come to the nuclear brink, you know, many people didn't know about it. Very close to accidental launch, for example. Mm -hmm. 1995, Boris Yeltsin almost launched Russia's nuclear weapons uh, when he thought that we, they were under attack. We discussed this last time, actually. Uh, they, uh, Norway launched a weather rocket, and the Russian military thought it was a submarine-launched ballistic missile. They opened up the nuclear football and told Yeltsin to press the button and launch. Fortunately, he didn't. We escaped that. We've had several dozen incidents like that, but the public didn't really know about them. And this, Ukraine, this is real. If, if you're worried about nuclear risks, if you're worried about this conventional war escalating to a bigger war and going nuclear, you're having a rational response to, to the situation. You're, mm. you're getting it. The risks are real. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I mentioned it online a few times and I've been taught as a military planner to think about most dangerous course of action. That's the responsible way, in my view, to handle strategy. Some folks say if you invoke that threat or talk about that threat, you're going to scare people. You, and, and I think we need to ground people in reality and experts like you and you in particular saying that is a reality we should be talking about and thinking about and facing. It seems more imminent because Putin's so openly talking about it, right, which I don't know have has historical precedent where he's saying this is a weapon I will use. As you continue to take us through history, and I want to get your thoughts on Putin using this 
right, to manipulate yeah. the world and m- manipulate American public opinion and maybe bait us into strategy. But can you can you set us up with the historical uh, piece of how we got here? Ukraine had nukes, right, and they know they don't have nukes now. Can you take us through what about that uh, that transition you think is most important for people to know and how it impacts things now? Sure. I was actually working in the House of Representatives back then. I was on the staff of the House Armed Services Committee when the Soviet Union collapsed. First, the Warsaw Pact. I was actually in Berlin the week the wall came down on a tour of NATO bases. And then in 1991, the Soviet Union uh, dissolves, basically. And that meant that the former republics within the Soviet Union were now independent countries and they had nukes. Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan had nuclear weapons. Ukraine had about 1,700 nuclear weapons. These were bombers and long-range ballistic missiles. Now, we say they gave them up, and that's true. And I was working with members of Congress who were promoting programs back then that came to be known as the non-Luger programs or the cooperative threat reduction programs that would help these countries get rid of their nuclear weapons, help pay for the destruction of these weapons. And Ukraine in particular was very receptive to this. But Ukraine never really had control of these weapons. They didn't know how to operate them. These were on their soil, but they were run basically by Russians, nor did they have the budget to maintain these weapons. And if they had chosen to keep them, that would have been a tremendous barrier to cooperation with Europe, which is something they wanted very much. And they would have been ostracized from the European Union, from cooperation with European countries. So for those reasons and more, they agreed to give them up. In exchange, they got security assurances from Russia, the United States, and Great Britain, who was the other signatory to the agreement, assurances that we would protect their territorial integrity, assurances we are not honoring right now. But they did give up those weapons. There is not a shred of evidence to support Putin's charge that Ukraine has nuclear weapons now, something he said to justify the invasion or was trying to get those weapons or trying to build those weapons. They have no capability whatsoever for producing highly enriched uranium or plutonium for the cores of weapons. They couldn't design or field a nuclear weapon if they wanted to, which they don't. So it begs the question, Joe, is this a message to the world that if you give up your nukes, you give up your security and you can't count on Russia or the West to protect you and keep their promises? It feels now like Ukraine trusted people to protect them and and gave up their nukes or gave up the Russian nukes, and now they're paying for it. So what's your view on that? Is this a message to the world that if you have nukes, don't give them up or you might be next? You know, Paul, this this is a, a profound question. And I would say on balance, the answer is probably yes, but it's not you know, binary. It's not all or nothing because there are plenty of countries that have that have given up nuclear weapons that haven't been invaded, either programs or weapons. For example, South Africa secretly built uh, six nuclear weapons uh, and gave them up on the eve of transition to majority rule. Brazil and Argentina used to have very advanced nuclear weapons programs. Brazil was drilling a test site, a, a, a tunnel for their nuclear weapons test when they gave them up. So we have lots of examples of people eschewing these weapons and not being invaded. But this, in this current moment, in this current period, yes, I would say that is something that many countries are going to look at and say, if you don't want to be invaded by a great power, 
You better have something to balance that great power's military strength. And the, one of the easy ways to do that is, a, is to use a nuclear weapon. So yes, this war and is, a, is a negative example for the rest of the world on, on whether they should acquire nuclear weapons or not. I, I want to get in a little bit to um, your thoughts on what should happen or, or how it, this can be approached in a number of different ways. But I want to go to maybe just a, a bit of analysis here. Like we talked about as a military planner, I was taught, you know, you scheme for the most dangerous course of action and then the most likely course of action. In your view, what is the most dangerous course of action? What is the worst case scenario we could see in this conflict with Putin? Uh, well, you know, the, the great risk is that Vladimir Putin is going to use a nuclear weapon. And, and it's not that we're going to do it. You know, we have no need to do it. NATO or the West doesn't have to do it, but it's Putin. And he wouldn't do that if he was winning the war. OK, using a nuclear weapon is a loser's move. It's, it's an act of desperation. And as Putin's offensive stalls, and you have probably had other guests who talk about his offensive reaching its culmination point. Russia is basically not able to conduct offensive operations right now. The map hasn't changed much for, for two weeks now. Is He's in trouble. He is not going to win this war. He might even lose it. And as he searches for a way to regain momentum, you can start ticking off. And I'd like to hear what you think about this, Paul, the things you could do to regain momentum. Well, one is you intensify the terror bombing, the, the artillery barrages on the cities, right? And you can see some of that happening. They're just pummeling the couple of cities that they've got surrounded. The other is that you could escalate to the use of chemical weapons, uh, chlorine gas, which is what Putin uh, with the Syrians used in the Syrian war. They, you know, they didn't kill that many people. Chlorine gas is, was basically the first chemical weapon. The Germans deployed it in World War One because it's heavier than air and it sinks down to the trenches. Well, in uh, Aleppo and possibly in Ukraine, if they used it, it would sink into the shelters. And that, you know, you can imagine the terror that would induce. They killed several thousand people in Syria from this. But the terror did, in fact, empty out the cities, drive people out. And you could see that here. And then finally, nuclear use. And this is the one we're going to concentrate on. It, it's it, it's right now. I don't think that's likely. But number one, it is quite possible Number two, they've been threatening to do it just in the last couple of days. You've seen senior Kremlin spokespeople reiterate the threat of using nuclear weapons first. And, and finally, it is built into their doctrine and their exercises. All the major conventional military exercises that Putin has conducted since he came into power, 1999, 2000, have included uh, practicing the use of nuclear weapons. He didn't. That, well, that is to say, drills involving nuclear capable systems, including six that he tested right before the invasion of Ukraine as part of those military exercises. And Russian doctrine allows for, in fact, almost mandates the use of nuclear weapons should Russia feel that there is a, quote, existential threat to the security of the nation. Now, losing the war in Ukraine wouldn't threaten Russia. It's not like Ukraine's going to then go, you know, drive to Moscow or NATO's going. No, that's not. But it will threaten Putin. And for a megalomaniac like Putin, who thinks he is the state and that if he loses, he could lose power and he might lose his life. Well, that is an existential situation. And he may mm -hmm. feel 
you know, narcissist that he is, that he's got to use those nuclear weapons to preserve him because if he falls, Russia falls, etc. So you can see where this goes. It's all set up. Finally, and this is the last point, Russia, like the United States, actually, integrates nuclear weapons on a spectrum of, um, of coercive weapons that they have. We call it integrated deterrence, and it's intended to strengthen deterrence at lower levels because the adversary will know that you're willing to go all the way. But there's a spectrum, and it's spelled out in our doctrines, it's spelled out in the Russian doctrines, whether it's economic sanctions, then to conventional military, then to cyber, then to nuclear. It's all integrated together. And that has some sense to it. You know, you deter somebody from attacking. But the, the flip side is once they do attack, once you are in a Ukraine, well, there's very few fire breaks right. between those levels. And that's what you're worried about, that you slide right into that and people think they can get away with it. That, that like a gambler at the table who's losing, they think, OK, I'm just going to bluff. I'm going to bet the house. I'm going to use this nuke and that will convince the West to back off. And I will win the hand. Well, you know, if if you're gambling and you lose and you lose, yeah, you lose a hand, you lose the game. In this case, you could lose the planet. Mm. But it is, so this is why I'm glad you're here. Professor is here. Class is in session. This is what we need. But I, I, I want, I'm curious about this idea that it is it is the move of a desperate a leader yeah. who's losing. Were we losing when we when we when we dropped bombs on, on Nagasaki and Hiroshima? I mean, is there a case to be made that this is a predictable escalation and he's told us what he's going to do and he says he wants Ukraine at any cost. He wants to decapitate the leadership in Kiev. And if you follow that to be true and you follow their doctrine, how this goes is, is whether he's losing or not, if his objective is to get Kiev and get Ukraine, then there is a distinct possibility with a guy who's playing by his own rules. He does not abide by our rules. He does not abide by our constructs that he will continue to escalate to chemical and other forms of, of unacceptable warfare. And then the natural escalation would be some kind of a nuke strike uh, at, directed at Kiev. Is, is that not, um, so, can you talk about that? And if yes. he were to strike Kiev, how would that happen if you if you dig, pull apart the the doctrine? Yeah. It's not you know 1984 war games with with all these scenarios. I think we've got burned in our brain. What would it actually look like if he hit Kiev? Sure. Uh, well, two things. When we used them in Hiroshima and Nagasaki 77 years ago, there was no risk to us. You know, we were the only ones with these weapons. We had just invented them. They were months old, and so this was a matter of military efficiency of calculations on cost benefit versus full-scale invasion of Japan. We'd already gotten used to the terror bombing of cities. The fire bombing of Tokyo killed far more people than were killed at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, or for that matter, Dresden, Hamburg. You know, so we were used to killing hundreds of thousands of innocent men, women, and children. That had become accepted use. So what we did in Hiroshima and Nagasaki was just did it with one bomb instead of thousands of bombs. OK, and there was no risk that somebody was going to do this to us. Well, now it's different. Now, the reason it's a loser's move, it's a desperation move, is that there's the, there's the real risk that somebody's going to respond and that you cannot control this escalatory cycle. You cannot win at this escalatory step in the ladder like you theory thinks. But the way you described it is exactly, I think, how Putin would think. And in fact, how many of our military um, 
writings think about limited nuclear war. This is real. There's a whole current of thought that advocates for controlled limited nuclear war, that you can control something like this. And so therefore, using a nuclear weapon first or second or third or fourth is acceptable. So Putin might think it is and that this is going to be a winning move for, for him. How would this work? Russian doctrine doesn't detail exactly how you would use a nuclear weapon. So there's sort of several possibilities. One, and they talk about this, it could be just a demonstration shot. So you could launch something from Russian territory from one of the bombers, for example. You could use the um, Kinsal cruise missile. You recently have seen that twice in this conflict they've tested or used the Kinsal hypersonic cruise missile. This is carried by a fighter bomber. It's launched. It travels about 10 times the speed of sound, so it's hypersonic. It's unclear why they're using it exactly. But one reason might be to test it out. Right. Right. I'm glad you bring this up. Because this is a really important point that I think a lot of folks in the media yeah, are yeah, missing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this some is people, a time where you test everything. Right? Well, everything you're, you're, you're taking aside here, right? Maybe not everything, but but you're <laughs> right. testing things you couldn't test before. Right. Well, right. they so they they did do a test of this. This was one of the six nuclear capable mm-hmm. systems he tested before the war, but now he's using it in combat. Mm-hmm. So this thing has never been used in combat before. Yep. And you know how wars go. People who have had these new weapons, they always want to test them out, use them, validate their military efficacy, right? So he uses this thing. Some people think it's because uh, Putin might be running out of cruise missiles. Um, I I think this is more of a message, more of a test, more of a preparation. Mm -hmm. So that is nuclear capable. That is to say it was used twice with conventional warhead. It could be used with a nuclear warhead, as can the Iskander missiles that are pummeling the cities now. He's using a lot of those to strike at cities. Some of those precision strikes, like the strike on the um, on the uh, food depot, food the strike supplies, on yep. the shopping center. Those were Iskander, I think, uh, and also other other types of cruise missiles. So right. you could shoot one of those over the Black Sea. It's a demonstration shot. You'd have a nuclear yield of some kind, various, it could be low yield, could be high yield. There's nothing in the doctrine that says you, 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 what the yield should be about this. But it's basically to show that this is serious, that, that you're willing to escalate to the nuclear level and you want the West to back off. And the doctrine talks about that. It's called escalate to de-escalate. Mm-hmm. escalate to de-escalate. So you do this and you force the West to back off. The second possibility is that you could use it in theater. So you use a weapon in theater. And the third is you could launch a strategic strike that you could lo- lo- use a long range missile to hit a U.S. Can you talk target. about, Joe, can you stop for a second? When, explain what you mean by use in theater. Oh, so then, so let's go back to that. Use in theater, meaning when we talk about tactical uh, nuclear weapons, it's not really about size, it's about range. And so the warheads that are on our tactical systems have about the yield as the ones that are on our long range missiles and bombers and subs that can span the oceans. So maybe 150 kilotons, 300 kilotons. But in the last 15 years or so, both Russia and the United States have kind of gone back to concepts from the 50s where they wanted to make these nuclear weapons more usable. There's a, they, 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 there was a feeling that we were we and they were being self-deterred, that our military leaders, mm-hmm. political leaders wouldn't use these weapons because they were too big. You know, if you right. drop something that's 20 times the size of the Hiroshima bomb, I mean, that's a level of destruction we've never seen on this planet before, except in tests of these mm-hmm. systems. 
So the idea is to scale them down, reduce the yield. And the way we do that, basically, um, we have something like the, the B-61. It's an airdrop munition. We have about 100 of them pre-positioned in Europe. It's got what they call a dial of yield. So it can go from about 150 kilotons, that's 10 times the size of Hiroshima, down to 0.3 kilotons. So that's Let's see, that's 300 tons of explosive force. That's still bigger than any conventional bomb we've ever seen, but it's small for a nuclear weapon. And so the damage would be limited. So you could use, the Russians have something like that, say one kiloton, two kiloton. You use something like that and you could hit um, a port and you would wipe out the port, but it wouldn't destroy the whole city. Mm -hmm. You could wipe out an airfield. You know, you could, you could, Finish the pulverization of uh, Mariupol. You know, you you you, you would not, kill yeah, thousands you could, you could of people. Wipe out, you could wipe out a grid square, right? It's like MLRS, right? You can yeah. you can pick pick your pick your, your grid square, and you can annihilate that that area with 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 a with a different type of weapon than you exactly. were using before. Yeah. So you see, you're talking about something, and it's like this decision on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We had already at this level of destruction. And so what we're talking about is using a nuclear weapon to, to implement that level of destruction in a shorter time. But it's not sort of on a destructive scale, fundamentally different from using mm. conventional, except, of course, it is because now it's a nuclear weapon. And now, in addition to blast, you're getting the heat of the sun. The temperature of a nuclear weapon is hotter than the surface of a sun. So you're setting off mega fires in a city. So you hit that port, you hit that airfield, you hit that part of a city, and you got an out of control fire that is raging and spreading. Plus, you have radiation that is killing anybody in, say, one mile, maybe a half mile radius. People would die immediately from a low yield nuclear weapon, but the radiation would spread, it would plume. Again, it's terror as addition to the kids. Mm-hmm. So you could see him using, I would think, one of those first two options. So not going all the way to a strike on a NATO or U.S. facility, but use it in theater, use it in Ukraine, or use it as a demonstration shot, say, over the Black Sea. So I want to stay with this because I think there's a lot of groupthink going on in the media right now, especially on cable news, where there's this idea that it's either U.S. stays out completely or we have World War Three where bombs are hitting, you know, New York and L.A. and we're firing back at Moscow. But there is this this really tactical region of what you're describing mm. that, in my view, seems more likely if you if mm. you trust Putin to do what he says he will do and you read Russian doctrine and you scale game this all the way out. And if you're Putin and you say, OK, the U.S. has said they're not coming in. They say yeah. things will be different if but they don't back it up. And I'm going to use chemical weapons and test them and Let's say he does that. Let's say he, he has a controlled tactical nuke of some kind that hits Kiev and annihilates Kiev, right? Yeah. What will the U.S. do, in your opinion? Because I think I think if we look at previous history, there is a case to be made that the U.S. will say, well, that was fucked up, but it's just in Ukraine. And we've said that nukes are a different thing, but we're not going to nuke Moscow what do you think is the response? Because this is the part of the conversation I feel is missing. If we yeah. if we game it out and say, okay, Putin is going to do this, he he annihilates a five mile radius around Kiev. What's Biden going to do? Okay, that's just three parts to my answer. The first Please. one is nobody knows, right? <laughs> right. right. So that, no, nobody really knows. Right. Uh, the second part is you can bet they're gaming this out right now intensively. 
in in the Pentagon right now, and I would say in NATO headquarters as well. And three, we can say, well, here are the possibilities. Here are the poss- here's the range of, of responses. And one is, and this is sort of standard, is we have to answer. You know, we have to answer right away. And you see people talking about this. And and just yesterday, the day before we're recording this in The New York Times, Bill Broad wrote an article and he quotes a guy named Frank Miller, who was former Defense Department official. And he talks about we would launch one back right away. And he's been a long time proponent of developing new, more usable nuclear weapons and about using these weapons in scenarios. So we can't be afraid to use them. And there's a lot of talk like that. And he would he said, you know, you'd launch one either into Siberia, you know, or onto a Russian military target. So you strike right at Russia for that. And there's a lot of thinking then writing and that supports that view that the way you answer a nuclear escalation is to escalate back. You know, he raises his bet. You raise your bet. You can understand the logic, of course, but with different rules, but with different rules. Right. Because Putin has said, I will play by different rules. I'll kill civilians. Yeah, I'll take out a city. So he takes out a city and we respond if we respond by saying we're going to again take the high road. We're not taking out your city. We're going to fire into a remote region or a strictly military target. Right. And then we're going to push back to you and see how you respond and how you respond. So and so the problem with that is that repeatedly in war games, you know, where we do exercise these things, there's no logical termination point. I mean, each side, each player has an incentive to raise the bet again and to and to bet that the other guy's not willing to go as far as you're willing to go. And so often in these war games, the whole thing escalates into, yes, global thermonuclear war. Right. So the second school of thought is that the only way to win this game is not to play it. So what that means is that you don't have a nuclear response and the U.S. is uniquely positioned that we don't need to have a nuclear response. Our conventional weapons are perfectly capable of executing any mission in in, in our playbook. So we could cause immense damage to Russian military facilities, political leadership, with tremendous controlled precision that could minimize civilian casualties, but could clearly indicate that you've crossed the line. And this is, and part of this thinking is, you do that and we're not just gonna send you a message uh-huh. We're not going to signal to you. We're going to take you out. You have forfeited your right to lead your country. We're going to take you, Putin, and all those around you. We're yeah. going to take you out. And you do that quickly to try to bring the war to a negotiated close. And the third is what you say. And I think there's a body of thought that says we don't do anything. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's we, there's um, we, we stand you know, aside. There, there is a question about whether the U.S. will will go as far as some would like us to go. There, there's the idea that Putin's willing to play by different rules. And the question is, are we going to stay in our lane and stay in our rules? Or are we going to cross over and play by his rules at some point? And I think he's betting right now that we never will. I mean, it, he, there's a calculation where he could nuke Kiev, say it's in his territory. And for us to attack Russia would be an incursion on a sovereign nation. It would be direct war with Russia. I honestly believe if he nuked Kiev, half the, the American public would not want us to respond. There, there might right. be a real there might be a real political backlash here in the U.S. that's going to say, yeah, but it's just one nuke. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't NATO. It wasn't Poland. It, they just keep redrawing that line. So I want to ask you to address the, the bigger question, understanding the various levels of escalation. You don't just put a blanket escalation like so many other people in the media. There is a call for a no-fly zone. 
right? Zelensky is calling for it consistently. And folks say that would require us to shoot at Russian airplanes or Russian assets. And I and Kinzinger and others would say, yes, it does. But that is a level of escalation that may be necessary to protect the people on the ground. Can you just break apart this idea that if we impose a no-fly zone, it automatically means Putin will nuke New York City? <laughs> mm. Well, right. So in all of this, there's nothing automatic. I mean, this is, you know, when you sort of game these things out, you 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 have choices at every move, right? And so what Biden has been doing is trying to avoid a situation where one of those choices is use nuclear weapons. OK, so not get the other player, not get Putin to the point where he feels he's, he's got to use a nuke at this point. And one of those is the no fly zone because at U.S. and Russia have never engaged in uh, sustained combat never had a sustained military uh, exchange. There were some skirmishes with Russian and U.S. pilots during the Korean War. There was an incident in Syria a couple of years ago where some Russian mercenaries mm -hmm. attacked a U.S. base and we freaking annihilated them. I think we mm -hmm. killed 250 Russians. And but that was it. There was no response. You know, boom. Um, and the reason you haven't had that exchange ever you know, in, all the way back to the Bolshevik Revolution, we sent some troops over to try to counter the Bolsheviks, but that was it. Since then, no, because of nuclear weapons, because you don't want this thing to escalate. And if we go do a no-fly zone, I mean, I, I, I'd, I'd like to hear your position, but I think there's no way to avoid air suppression. The very first thing we do is go sh shoot down, yeah. we suppress the defenses, and that means you're attacking the sites in Russia and Belarus. And that means you're killing hundreds of Russians, hundreds of Belarusians, and you're shooting down the Russian planes that that violate it. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's a no-fly zone is magic. We're not yeah. in a Marvel universe of WandaVision <laughs> where you could put a force field over this, over the over Ukraine. You have to enforce this thing. I, I think so, so, I, so. They're trying to avoid that direct combat because of the escalatory risks. I, I just think that I, 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 I am concerned that we too often operate from a position of fear where we allow Putin no. to control the tempo. We assume we know what he's going to do rather than address what he's already doing, right? And, and if the issue is stopping the bombs, right? We got to focus, the pilots always say, focus on the target, right? What's the target? Yeah. The target is stop civilian massacres. The target is stop bombs on civilians and airstrikes on civilians. Now, there are many ways to, to execute a no-fly zone that I think could be entertained to include Poland doing it, right? It doesn't have to be the U.S. and only U.S. forces. It could be, there are variations, right? NATO may or may not hold. These, these constructs may or may not hold. And I think what I'm struck with is a lack of creativity, and it seems like Putin is continuing to be creative and America, at least in public, has been handcuffing themselves. And I guess what I always come back to, Joe, is do you really believe this is the question for the world? Do you believe we're already at war with Russia? And I believe we already are. I believe that the attacks on our elections, the attacks, the cyber attacks, what we are already facing has gotten us to a place where it's going to be really hard for there not to be Russians that die as a result of some kind of American involvement. And Putin could already make that case. He could say the U.S. has already declared war on us because of sanctions. They have already declared war on us because we're providing javelins. He continues to set the stage and then we walk onto it. And I guess the question for especially Biden is how do we change that dynamic? 
How do yeah. we set the terms? And rather than being reactive to everything that Putin does, be proactive and even creative. It, it can include humanitarian ways. It can, can include sanctions. But it seems like everything we do is letting Putin do what he wants to do, which is what he said he was going to do. Then we act kind of surprised that he's doing what he said he's going to do, which is play by different rules. And then I think, at least for the Ukrainians, we look weak. We feel like yeah. we're not helping our friends. We seem like we're going to put a wall up around Ukraine and let a genocide happen. And there are plenty of folks who would have already let that happen if the Ukraine if Ukraine army didn't dig in. So I think there's a real question that comes out of Afghanistan, that comes out of Ukraine. Where will America shed blood? Will America ever shed blood anymore? And, and will they use the, the military that they've got in ways that can change the dynamic in a, at a minimum, let's just say, to prevent a genocide, right? And I guess, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying, I don't know, Joe, Yeah. but I do feel like what has come out of this is Putin is, is, is manipulating the American public as well, because most Americans think if we engage with Russian troops on any level, Putin will immediately go to nukes. And we don't know that to be true. That's the assumption that I don't accept, is that if we kill 500 Russians in, in Crimea, they think that that will automatically mean that Russia launches a nuke. And I think that is the jump that I am uncomfortable with and I think is guiding too much of at least the public dialogue and maybe some decision making in Washington, too. Well, I, I agree with you that it's not automatic. But you see, but then you, you have to calculate this in because what you just expressed is your assessment. It is your belief and that we could do more. For example, you know, if we wanted to, NATO forces could take out that artillery that's that's killing the civilians right now. I mean, that's the problem. The Ukrainian forces seem to have blunted the ground invasion, right? Russia is not advancing. And in fact, they're retreating in certain areas. So this is just remarkable. And that's why they're relying on these long range strikes. You know, these things are coming from tens, even hundreds of kilometers away to strike these cities. We could take that out. But to do that, you got to strike the sites in Russia and Belarus that are launching these things. What would Putin's response be to that? Well, if you do that, you got to say, well, there is a possibility that he would then use a nuclear weapon. But Joe, we don't have it. to. We so, don't so have you just to gotta strike. recognize that that's yeah. your risk you're to but, but, take. But we also don't have to strike in Russia. <clears throat> we could say we will only strike targets that have already crossed the border into could Ukraine. Be. Yeah, that's right. Right. We will help Ukraine there. enforce their sovereignty, enforce their airspace. We want to stop a slaughter and anything that comes across the border, NATO collectively, or let's just say Poland individually, will annihilate. Yeah, right? well, number one, Poland individually ain't going to do that. I mean, that's, that, you know, they didn't even want to transfer the MiG-29s individually. They wanted to send them to, to Germany that would send, you know, so the, the, the countries that have been occupied by Russia are very nervous about Russia and they're not doing yeah. anything by themselves. But I understand your point. And, and so I guess I come down squarely in the middle. I've talked just yesterday. I did a podcast with somebody on the on the left who was saying, why are we even doing this? What, what is it our responsibility? She don't want any involvement, any aid into this. this. It's not our fight. You know, and look at the history of U.S. wars in the last 20 years. None of these were just. She thinks that this was just a bunch of warmongering and that somehow we were responsible for this fight. And then you get people uh, a little all the way over on the right. and said, let's go in. Let's just finish the job. So I find myself <laughs> in the middle. Like I and I do support what Biden is doing. I think he's handling this just about right. And part of the reason 
you have to preserve NATO unity. You know, a yeah. lot of a lot of the and people I appreciate who don't that, Joe. want I think, us to take more yeah. action are those people on the front lines, Poland, yeah. Baltics, et cetera, who want well, us to send troops to their country, but don't want us to send ex- troops into Ukraine. Except, and, and I love this exchange because I think mm-hmm. it's really important, um, except for the people on the front lines in Ukraine who really uh, yeah. want us to help oh, right do. now. Absolutely. And they say, hey, we are the front lines. We are the speed bump before Poland. And we're a lot bigger than everybody thought we we're going to be. And you won't let us in NATO. And you won't give us a no-fly zone. And you won't give us MiGs. And we are dying by the hundreds of thousands. And I guess what I get to is this is a, a perfect issue for independent Americans, right? It's a perfect time for pragmatism because you've got yeah, yeah, the yeah. right that wants to go in this crazy direction. And then you've got the left that thinks it's our fault. And I think the left is, in, you know, the left, right? But many left leaning voices have embarrassed themselves in the last couple of weeks, right? So this is a great time, great time for the middle, right? And the independent middle. And let let me ask you this, because I think the important strength of that is pragmatism. And you've been helpful in deconstructing this, regardless of what what Biden does. Can you talk about one thing that Zelensky did bring up? If we don't care about genocide, we care about the threat to the rest of the world. There are 15 nuke sites in Ukraine that Zelensky has raised up and said that they could potentially become environmental disasters. They're oh, yeah. not weapons facilities, they're yeah. energy plants. <clears throat> Can you talk about that? Is that a, is that yes. gauge that level of yes. risk and how you view that in particular? Because that seems most imminent. Yes. Right? I, I, Chernobyl I type situation. So on the spectrum of risks, I mean, these, these ones that are less probable nuclear use are the most consequential, mm. but then you get, the most probable still have serious consequences. And that's the one that stemmed from the uh, Russian attacks and occupation of Chernobyl and um, Zaporizhia uh, nuclear site. So there's 15 nuclear reactors in Ukraine, power reactors. It's heavily dependent on nuclear power for its energy. And they're concentrated in four different facilities. And the Russians have seized one of them. And this represents a whole other dimension of nuclear risks. In fact, In Ukraine, we have a confluence of nuclear risks that we've never seen before. There were more risks at one time in one place than has ever happened before. So seizing Chernobyl, a former power facility, now a radiological waste site, that's never happened before. Attacking a civilian nuclear power plant, never happened before in the history of nuclear power, right? Taking taking it over, occupying it, not letting the workers leave. So in both these facilities, so you ha- the, the, the risks are manifold. One, just by keeping these workers under these extreme conditions. And just yesterday, before we're talking about this, the Russians finally let the work shift at Chernobyl leave. So imagine you signed up for an eight, 10 hour work shift. Yeah. The Russians come in and three weeks later, you're still there. And they finally let him go and allowed an exchange of shift. And you got to congratulate those Ukrainian tech- technicians who are willing to walk in yeah. to relieve their fellow Ukrainian operators to operate the plant. But Operating a nuclear facility, even under the best of conditions, is tricky business. And imagine when you're cut off, you're held prisoner, you're operating literally at gunpoint. There's tanks in the Mm -hmm. parking lot. I mean, this is high stress. You're you're asking for trouble. Just a mistake could cause you trouble. Second, um, you're worried about radiological leaks, uh, both unintentional and intentional. Unintentional is a mistake or the result of the attack, my damage containment zones, or... 
um, you're risking the loss of electro- electric power to these facilities. For example, as we're talking right now, there are four different forest fires burning around Chernobyl. So just in that one thing, you know, this, this is like one of those Russian dolls. You keep yeah, opening them yeah, up and there's yeah. another doll inside. So let's just take a look at Chernobyl and the risk there. There's four different fires and that has two separate nuclear risks in it. One is that the trees that are burning are, radio, are radioactive, you know, so they have absorbed the radioactive waste through their roots and now they're burning and that puts it in the air. So you're right. getting, you are, and you, you're risking spreading that radioactivity. It's low level. It's not going to kill you, but it's definitely going to cause cancer. Second is that the fires may are risking um, the transmission lines, the electric power lines. Well, you cut off electricity to these facilities, particularly Zaporizhia, which is an operating nuclear plant. I think they got three of the reactors back online. If they don't have electricity, and if something goes wrong with their backup electricity, which goes for about 48 hours, well, then you can't cool the reactors. You can't cool the the cooling ponds with the spent fuel. And then you're looking at meltdown scenarios. And this worried us tremendously in the first week of the war. It is still a worry. It is still a concern, which is why the International Atomic Energy Agency wants to have a ceasefire around those plants, wants to send inspectors in, has all kinds of concerns. They're frustrated that they've been unable to do this. And then finally, you got the intentional release. Why has Russia occupied these sites? Right? What? Because they're chips on the board, man. They're chi- like this is the first yes. is they're chips on the board, and I think that's the situation we've got is where Putin is going to take every chip he can. Yes, yes, and he's going to and, and hold do that what? Chip. Do what with it? Just stick on this. Do well, what? fuckery because he's he's Putin, and what he does is fuckery, <laughs> right? So if I if I were Putin, you hold those nuke plants and you fuck with them and you terrorize yeah. people and maybe you let some things go and then if maybe you maybe you let it melt down and say the Ukrainians did it that's and then you, exactly you mobilize right. you mobilize your country behind a you know a nuke related terrorist strike um, this it's just it's more fuckery it's what putin does it's a chip on the board and i think this is the chip on the board that that again urges uh more conversation about what the us and nato can do to control the tempo to stop putin from having any number of, of nuke sites in whatever way they can of course they're doing plenty of covert shit that we'll never know about right but, on but, the intelligence but, side on the special operations let me side. just stop you right there just to but, put yeah. the point and then we'll go on to this Please. you can see as we now have delved deeper into this that each one of these separate risks has multiple facets to it mm-hmm. and depending on intentions and, and etc and you can see that it, as we said in the beginning if you were worried about the nuclear risks you will have an accurate assessment of the situation yeah there yeah. are multiple they are deep. They are unpredictable. You've got to be extremely cancer. You know, do you cut the red wire or the or the blue wire? You There's know, no. Yeah. Kasparov, this is really risky stuff. Yeah. Kasparov keeps saying easy is over. Right. And I think that's important for everyone to understand. Easy is over. There are no easy decisions now. They're all less bad decisions. And I think this is one, again, that may be pressed upon us. Right. If we allow Putin to, to push the pace, to control the assets, to dictate the terms. We sit here and say, well, he's got two nuke sites and we hope he won't melt them down. Like he, we, he doesn't play by our rules. So can, you know, hope is not a course of action. And I guess it leads me to the last issue that I really got to get your thoughts on. You, you write about this, you talk about this, the concept of lo- loose nukes, right? There is also another scenario where 
you know, maybe Putin keeps power, maybe Putin loses power, maybe Putin dies, maybe the entire, you know, top level of, of Russian leadership, it might be one year from now, it might be 10 years from now, is gone. And there is tremendous unrest inside of Russia. Um, can you talk about that threat uh, and, and whether it's it's limited to Russia or it's not this idea of loose nukes. How loose are they? Well, how much of a threat is it now and how much of a threat could it be in the near future? Yeah. Yeah. So this is um, this is a new scenario that really has just come up in the last couple of days. And um, Dmitry Medvedev, you may remember, he, he was briefly president Mm-hmm. He gave a talk just yesterday, uh, made a statement where he warns about this. He mm-hmm. basically is telling the West to back off because if you topple Putin, the Russia is going to collapse. The government's going to collapse. And this is real. And nobody's really thought this through. Absolutely. Right. So the Soviet Union collapses in 1991. OK, well, that was a fairly peaceful collapse. That was a negotiated dissolution. And there were leaders in the various republics ready to assume control, right? You don't have anything like that now. Putin is an autocrat. It is, you know, a one-man rule, and it is brittle. And if that thing goes, well, who does control the 6,000 nuclear weapons? Who controls the plutonium facilities, the highly enriched uranium facilities? You would have a, a, a period of chaos in, in those facilities. And, and a lot of things can go wrong there, which is why this leads us back to how do we get out of this? You know, I, I think the Biden administration, and I think most responsible strategists are not looking for the absolute defeat of Putin. As much as you would like to find somebody who would shoot him in the head, who would topple the regime, what you want is a, is, a, is a negotiated ending of the war that leaves Putin in power, as awful as that is, but that he then implements the withdrawal from the field, possibly the payment of reparations to Ukraine. He gets some territorial territory, territory he wants. Ukraine has some form of neutrality, you know, but this is worked out and it's an end to the war that both sides can claim some victory. Because if you don't do that, you have all these great uncertainties, all these great risks. And it might be more morally satisfying to see Putin killed. But strategically and for your own national security purposes, it's not really the desired outcome. So this, this is where I'll close this answer. This is why I basically support the Biden strategy. What are they doing? They're trying to find a way to get to that point by using two methods. One is economic and political and diplomatic pressure. Uh, We've never seen sanctions like this, and they're just starting to bite. So we need time for these sanctions to work. And so to do that, we got to buy time in the battlefield. And so we're arming the Ukrainians at levels we don't think will be construed by Putin to be direct U.S. military engagement, but are helping them stymie this offensive. And these and not with combat jets, which is they say they want, but with these short infantry weapons. The infantry is doing this, right? And it's remarkably productive. And I think we could ramp this up tremendously, particularly with more sophisticated drones. You know about the switchblade. You know about the the Turkish drones that they're providing. If you could give them some long-range drones that could hit those artillery pieces, you know, you could really see – you could basically – 
stymie the Russian offensive and, 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 and have the collapse of the invasion force from its own weaknesses, its yeah. own failures. And we're starting to see hints of that. So those two, that's the way they're trying to blunt the offensive yeah. and turn the tide of battle. We'll know in another month or so whether this works. Unfortunately, the cost of it is going to be um, thousands of Ukrainian lives. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the core of it, right? The, the question should be, and, and I think ask, how many Ukrainians are you okay with dying? Right? Like, because that's the reality here. Like, we could be at hundreds of thousands of civilians. And, and there's a kind of a long game here that the Biden administration seems to be playing and, and is not always terribly candid about it, which is the most likely thing that will happen is a negotiated settlement where Putin survives and lives to fight another day. And we yeah. kick the can down the road and everybody buys into Putin's arguments about if you fuck with me, I'll use nukes. If you fuck with me, there'll be loose nukes. And, and, and I guess the question I keep asking is, and I don't have an answer here, Joe, is we had all these arguments about why Donald Trump needed to go. Yeah. Right. Donald Trump needed to go because he was so unstable. He was so bad. He was so malicious. And anything is better than Trump. Nobody said, you know what, if you get rid of Trump, you might get Ron DeSantis or you get rid of Trump, you might get someone else. But for some reason in, 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 in Moscow, there is this fear that folds into the construct that Putin has created that you must have me. And if you don't, the alternative is so much worse. And I guess that's where I'm left um, and I think the world is left unsatisfied. Yes. The idea that, that he is going to survive, that he will live to fight another day. He will have you know, taken some losses, but he'll consolidate and reorganize. He'll still have nukes. You can all go back to focusing on the Kardashians in the Olympics for a little while, but make no mistake, he'll be back and he'll have more time to, to create the next level. So I keep going back to the Russian yeah. people, right? I hope that the Russian people are the hope here in the same way the Ukrainian yeah. people are. Yes. And maybe even the Russian military that we and can- Good hope, reason to believe that. Yeah. Hope they will hold the line like General Dempsey did. And, and I'm mean, sorry, uh, uh, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs Millie. did here. Millie Mark did. Thank you. In the U.S. with Trump. Right. We hoped that they would hold. Yes, 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 but yes, we yes, really yes. didn't know. So I guess yeah, yeah. when it comes down to it, we're putting our hopes in the Ukrainian people, understandably, in the Russian yeah. people, understandably, but also more and more so on the Russian military and hoping yeah. that they can be a buffer to Putin, either near term and yes. long term, in the same way our military was to to Trump. Yes. And here's what I'd say to you, Paul. You can't think you're going to solve all these problems on the battlefield, that this war is not going to resolve these bigger, more systemic problems. It took us about 20 or 30 years of bad decisions to get here to this war. And the war sort of culminates it, you know, it, it explodes and it reveals all the tensions, all the, the failed policy. Did we have to expand NATO? Do we have to expand it the way we did? Maybe we should have, did we have to impose this shock therapy on, on, on Russia in the 1990s that transferred all the assets to the oligarchs that created the autocracy that Putin, and you know, you look back and you, why does Putin still have 6,000 nuclear weapons 30 years after the end of the Cold War? Could we have done something to get rid of those? And if he did not have nuclear weapons, this war wouldn't have happened, mm. right? Mm -hmm. These nuclear mm -hmm. weapons that we think of our greatest strength are actually our greatest weakness. That's what's stopping us from taking some of the measures you, so you're not gonna fix this all on the battlefield. You're not gonna fix this all in the war, but after it's over, if we get out of this, right? And I think the odds are that we will, that's our chance to be prepared with policy correctives, mm. to understand what this war has taught us about um, well, just a stick about nuclear weapons.
Do we need that many? Can't we move faster to eliminate them? Can we have different rules of the of the of the road? Biden right now could be helping by saying, for example, that NATO or the U.S. have no intention of using a nuclear weapon first. And no one should ever use a nuclear weapon first. That is not our policy, by the way. No, our policy is Putin's policy. We reserve the right to use a nuclear weapon first. Well, you see where that gets you. Yeah. So you it's can just, see we're, that we're, we're, Yeah, we're so in that spot. That, that's, spot. That's it. My, my point is you got to take care. Of, you got to put out the fire first and then you can take care of the, the situations that created the conditions for the fire in the first place. I am so with you, except that the whole world is on fire right now. <laughs> and, 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 and I think that as we go forward, um, you know, I think there's a very real possibility we could be talking about worse scenarios. There's a very yes. real possibility we could be talking about what Russia looks like after a time of yes. trem- we, we've gotten the upheaval wrong almost every time. Right. Whether it was in Egypt or in America or in Iraq or in Afghanistan, we seem to get the upheaval wrong every time. And I still believe that we are underestimating the potential for upheaval inside Russia. And there may be a time that could last a year, could last 20 years where Russia is 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 a shit show that looks like a cross between World War Z and Mad Max and the Sopranos. Right. And but maybe there's a future. Maybe there's a future where the nukes are secure and Gary yes. Kasparov is president and things have settled down, but that's not going to be anytime soon. Yeah. And so I'm grateful for you that you you continue to add this important light to contrast the heat that you're having these conversations, because I don't know if there's anything that's more misunderstood and manipulated than nukes. Really? Yeah. It, it's just it's it's this weird boogeyman third rail you know, yeah. bludgeon, especially in American politics. And I, and I feel like if there's ever a time where we need less groupthink and less old school thinking, you're one of the old school thinkers that have evolved for the current times. Yeah. I, I wish more of them were like you, Joe. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I did duck and cover drills. Yeah. I was alive during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I worked on nukes during the Reagan era. Yeah. 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 But you have to evolve. You're right. Yeah. Well, Paul, thank you very much. This is well, Joe. Wonderful thank you for exchange. thank you for sticking around as always, and for all your leadership, my friend. Um, you continue to be a real source of of strength and and inspiration and information, which is really so key. You are Professor Nuke, I guess, is what we might have to call you from now on. The the great Joe Serencioni. Thank you for coming back on on Independent Americans, my friend. Stay vigilant. Thank you, Paul. He is a man who has evolved to meet the changing times, no matter how daunting they might be. He's our resident professor, Nuke, the great Joe Serencioni. And he's a true hero. Follow him on Twitter, at Serencioni. Check out his new article for ResponsibleStatecraft.org. I'll link it to the show notes wherever you got this episode. He talks about curbing loose talk of using lower-yield nuke weapons. Joe is a voice of reason and a voice that doesn't bullshit us. And he's another true helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. As we recognize the helpers, we have to recognize the loss of another helper and a true American hero who passed this week. The great Madeleine Albright, a titan and an eternal champion for the best of what America can be. I had the honor of meeting Madeleine Albright just once, and I've never been more struck by a leader's powerful intelligence and humility. 
She represented the best of what America is all about, the true American dream. And she was a true helper that we will badly miss, especially in times like this. When I say look for the helpers, I mean people like Madeleine Albright. On social media, look for the hashtag, look for the helpers, and share yours. I'll continue to elevate them, and I'll continue to amplify anything you tag for me. And when you're on social media, be sure to play guest to guest every Wednesday night. And as you can see, we're bringing more episodes. We're going to keep them around an hour, and we're going to keep them focused on Ukraine until further notice from all sides. We're going to drop them every Thursday per usual, and I'm going to try to drop another one in between whenever I can on Fridays or Mondays. Check our social media to find out when they're coming, and be sure to go to independentamericans.us. You can sign up for our newsletter and find out when every new episode drops. You can also check out video from my conversation with Joe Serencioni and link to all kinds of other good reading and good content. You can also see video of every single conversation we've ever done there, and they're also on YouTube, but it's all at independentamericans.us. You can also get some of the really cool Independent Americans gear and support this show. We've got great t-shirts, hats, lots of comfortable stuff to help you get into the spring. You can also support this show by joining our powerful and fun and dynamic Patreon community. Like our newest member, Lisa Hazelwood. Welcome, Lisa. Great to have you as a part of the Righteous Community. And shout out to all of our Patreon members and supporters, and especially the folks that came out Friday night for our Zoom Righteous Independent Americans Cocktail Hour. We had folks from all backgrounds, from across the country, from California to Indianapolis to Texas to Florida to Queens. We also had some special guests join us. The new host of the Righteous Media Production, B-Dorm Podcast, also joined us, Jericho Turner and Don Elbert. They joined the crew. We had some drinks. We told some stories. We reflected on this show, and we talked about what's next. But it's a powerful community, and I hope we'll do these about once a month for our Patreon members only, and we'll open it up to other folks, too. But Patreon members are at our core. Join this crew and help us spread the word. You can also get exclusive content, and you will get exclusive content if you're a Patreon member of my conversation with Joe Serencione, who went off to make some ZD for his family right after we finished our conversation. But that's for Patreon members only. You can find us on Patreon or at independentamericans.us. Please take a minute to also go to the Apple Podcast Store and give us five stars. While you're there, be sure to subscribe for free and share. Whatever platform you're listening on, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts, be sure to hit that subscribe button. That's how we can make sure to give you these episodes whenever they pop up. And share them. Because Righteous is continuing to bring you the five eyes in all our podcasts and everything we do, especially as the war in Ukraine continues to unfold. We'll bring you the independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact you've come to know and trust. It's brought to you by that powerful Righteous Media team of creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz, who I want to wish a very happy anniversary, and precise Paula Hernandez. It's not our anniversary till October, but I want to give a big thank you to my amazing wife and two boys. As always, they are the core of my energy and my strength, and I'm so grateful for them, especially in these intense times. And after hitting 65 degrees last week, it's going to go down to 17 tonight. It snowed again today, but spring is coming. We went to something called Maple Fest today, and that was amazing. And the animals are out. The flowers are popping. Spring is coming. 
And the family and I enjoyed a very good show that I highly recommend called Animal on Netflix. It is a fantastic nature show. And we started out with the Birds of Prey episode that was amazing. Then we did bears and dolphins and we still got apes to go. But we watched bears and dolphins and birds of prey. They are all fantastic, really good stuff to get you motivated for spring. Highly recommended. But Animals is back. F1 Racing is back. Monster Jam is back. Spring is back. And spring is about hope. And this is a time where we really need to have hope. And there's places we can find hope. March Madness is one place that always reminds us about the power of hope. It is the best sports event of the year, in my opinion. Every year, it's amazing. Because of the surprises. Because of the underdogs. The ones that never give up. The ones that believe in themselves. The ones who pull it off against all odds. Like tiny, number 15, St. Peter's University from Jersey City, New Jersey. 67, 64, four seconds left. You don't like the foul, remember. Ivy for the tie. Off the rim, and it's over. This miracle run continues for St. Peter's. The Peacocks make history. The first 15 seed to the Elite Eight. In NCAA tournament lore. If you haven't heard, they did it. Number 15, St. Peter's beat a number two. They beat Kentucky. And they pulled off the impossible. They just kept winning. And they did something that had never been done before. A number 15 went to the grade eight. Little St. Peter's University, like Ukraine, has actually done something else close to impossible. They've united many Americans. There's certainly more unity in Congress than we've seen in the last few years around Ukraine. And I see it more and more every day in the people I meet out on the streets and in the stores and around this country. And that unity and the spirit of Ukraine is a source of hope for America, too. As we face this new phase of the pandemic and we step into a new one in the war in Ukraine, America has a chance to lead. Despite all our screw ups. The world still needs us, and we can still make a huge impact, especially if we're united. America's still divided, but we at Independent Americans and Righteous Media are working to change that, to add light, to contrast to heat. And if you're among that 42% of Americans that are independent or unaffiliated, this is your podcast. And if you're a Republican, a Democrat, or any other member of a party, but you're not a diehard partisan, this is your podcast. And if you're a concerned American or citizen anywhere in the world who cares about the future, this is your podcast. You are all welcome. And we invite you to join us and be a part of the solution. Check out all our Righteous Media podcasts at Righteous.us. That includes The Firefighters with Rob Sarah and, of course, B-Dorm, Uncle Montel, the OG of Weed is on the way. But check out more information. Get that hope and subscribe for free wherever you got this pod or at Righteous.us. And keep sharing the hope because hope is the oxygen of democracy in Ukraine, and in America. It's a good time to be the underdog in basketball and in war. But you got to believe. You got to have hope. You got to look for the helpers and for the heroes. Heroes come in many forms. And to many of us, Taylor Hawkins was one of them. The legendary Foo Fighters drummer 
died this week at the age of 50. He was the best friend of frontman Dave Grohl, and he died during a South American tour with the band. Back in the day, he was a drummer for Alanis Morissette until he found Dave Grohl, and Dave Grohl found him. And people love Taylor Hawkins, of course, because they love the band The Foo Fighters and because they love the music. But people love Taylor Hawkins because of his spirit, his energy, his passion, his hope. It was contagious. I saw the Foo Fighters play at the Garden once, and it was a show I will never forget. Yeah, everybody watches Dave Grohl, but everybody also watches Taylor Hawkins. The dude just loved life and expressed it with so much generosity. His loss is more terrible news for the world and a tremendous loss. But it's also a reminder of how much one person can do and how a true hero and true hero spirit lives forever. So thank you, Taylor, from all of us, for all of it. Taylor Hawkins was about spirit and about hope. And his spirit was heroic, like the heroic spirit of Ukraine, the heroic spirit that's also the true and founding spirit of America. And it's the true spirit of independent Americans. It's in all of us. And it's in you. And it's the heroic energy that will keep this movement of independent Americans growing week by week. It'll fuel the fight in Ukraine. And it'll fuel the future of America, even in the darkest and toughest times. So stay vigilant, my friend, because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And that vigilance, just like the Foo Fighters music, is thriving and spreading all across the world and across Ukraine. Ukraine continues to show all of us what a true hero is. And we must stay vigilant. I know you're not alone in your vigilance. We're all vigilant. And we're all in this together, especially now. All across America, all across Ukraine, all around the world, we're in this together. From the Ukrainian refugees in Poland to Joe Biden in the White House. From the St. Peter's Peacocks to Joe Serencioni. From Taylor Hawkins to you. It's a time of crisis, but that's the time for heroes. And there's a hero in all of us. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Down with Putin. Slava Ukraine. And stay vigilant, America. Media.